This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Covaris, Ranchford Eye Center, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, a show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you all today. Uh, This past week was kind of a busy week for me. I was in Las Vegas last week with the Justin Rodeo Sports Medicine Conference. Uh, Interesting conference. It is a group of all the medical providers who provide care for rodeo athletes which is something I'm just getting familiar with myself. Uh, it was just it was really just a, a great group, and it's such a different group in terms of the athletes they treat because they're self-employed athletes, right? So self-employed athletes don't get paid unless they get on an animal in Western sports. The thing that shocked me is I've worked primarily with bull riders, but the people who ride bareback um, is – uh, is something I'd never seen before in terms of the beating. Um, they say that if you have a bad ride in bareback, you get really beat up. If you have a good ride in bareback, you get really beat up. And it was uh, pretty amazing. And the crowds, it's 10 days of national finals rodeo, something we don't know much about here, I think. And in Las Vegas, they sell out every ticket every night for 10 days. You have to be on a list. You have to inherit the tickets for these events. Uh, so it's it's tremendous. And uh, it was just a great group to be with, a great group of medical professionals. Today in the studio, we're going to be joined by Dr. Matthew Imperioli. Uh, Dr. Imperioli is the director of the Yukon Peripheral Nerve Program. So we're going to talk about peripheral neuropathy, painful tingling, pins and needles, numbness that you get in your hands and feet and why you get it and what can be done about it. And really, the new program at the University of Connecticut where they're looking at this and taking care of patients. So we want to chat with him, and we'll get you all that information regarding uh, the program there. December 15, 1924, uh, was the day Dr. Frederick Trendelenburg passed away. Now, Dr. Trendelenburg, interesting, we, we all know that name, uh, from medicine because he's named after so many things. There's a Trendelenburg sign. There's a Trendelenburg symptom, gait, cannula, position, uh, and several surgeries named after him. But what we know for him about what we know the most about Dr. Trendelenburg is the position you put someone in if they're fainting or they have cardiac insufficiency in some way. You tip the bed toward their head. So someone's laying flat on their back. You raise the feet up so that their head is down, and you eliminate part of gravity, making it easier to get blood flow to the brain. So with that, that's the Trendelenburg position and something we refer to all the time even today. And he passed away on this day in 1924. We're hearing a lot about the Shingrix vaccine, the shingles vaccine, and it's scarce. It's hard to find. Let me explain the vaccine overall. First of all, you have to understand the problem. Shingles is the varicella zoster virus. 
so herpes zoster virus, that is in all of us in, when we get chickenpox. It lives in the, an area of the nervous system called the dorsal root ganglion. As we get older, it gets more active, and you are more vulnerable for it to become active, and it produces shingles. Shingles are a painful, blistering rash, followed by extreme pain in many cases. Now, it's serious because it can lead to brain damage. Some people get it in their eye and lose sight. So it's not something to be treated lightly. And that's why we try to vaccinate people. The previous vaccine was only effective to 30 to 40 percent. And that vaccine you had to get when you were 60 years old. I got it. And, but now the Shingrex vaccine is 90% effective. So if you got the vaccine, there's a 9 out of 10 chance that you will not get shingles. And 1 out of 3 adults will get shingles who have not been vaccinated. So with that, the numbers are overwhelmingly in favor to get this vaccine. So much so that they dropped the age to now age 50. That's the latest thing. The FDA has said everybody over age 50 should be getting this vaccine. And why? The reason is because when you get shingles, you miss time at work. You're gonna, it's going to cost the system a lot more money than this vaccine costs. So our real problem is it's two injections, one at the onset, it's just an injection in the arm, and then... Anywhere between two and six months after the first injection, you need a second injection. The problem here is getting it because people realize how important it is to get the vaccine. So my advice is to check regularly with your pharmacy. So the pharmacies are getting it, but they have waiting lists and you have you may have to go a little bit further than usual. But uh, interestingly, the, the insurance companies are paying for it. So they realize there's benefit, which which brings me to another point, is that I don't know how they think an insurance company. So we've heard about the EpiPen, right? Somebody jacked up the rate. Well, I'm getting ready to go to Haiti next week, and I typically take quinine, chloroquine. Very basic. It's a pill, a quinine pill. I take it the week before I go, the week I'm there, and then for four weeks after. So I need six pills. Went to buy the six pills of a very benign medication that has been around for centuries. And it cost $54, out of pocket $54, to get six pills for quinine. When I asked the pharmacist what was going on, she said, well, it's one of those drugs that they don't use a lot. And very few companies make it, so they have to jack up the price. Would they prefer that I got malaria? I mean, it's such a preventative medication, and you try to take all the safety measures. So I have yet to figure this whole pharmacy thing out. Um, but please keep in mind, the shingles vaccine, get it. It's going to be important. You're hearing a lot today about the Affordable Care Act, right? So the Affordable Care Act, or as it was dubbed, Obamacare, uh, is a sign-up period from November 1st to December 15th every year. For people to sign up. Now, I, I've never been a real big fan of Obamacare, but I have to tell you that this program has worked. And it's worked because 
of the adverse it because of the insurance mandate. Let me explain it again. The insurance mandate says everybody's got to have insurance. If you don't want insurance, you're going to get taxed. The reason for that is because much like many of the people listening to this program, we've gone out and paid for insurance or have Medicare, meaning you paid for insurance in advance, okay? And people who get sick and don't have insurance just show up and we're paying for them. So those of us who pay for our insurance are saying, wait a second, it's not an option anymore. You get insurance because otherwise it's costing me money. Unfortunately, they've now repealed that mandate, right? Somebody in Texas said it's it's unconstitutional. Well, it's going to affect me and it's going to affect many of you who are listening to this program. What has really affected things has been, so the Affordable Care, people who sign up for the Affordable Care Act are paying more for that because of adverse selection. That means only the sickest people are signing up for the Affordable Care Act. So it costs the insurance company more money. Healthy people are not, healthy people are saying, well, nobody's forcing me to do it anymore, so I'm not going to sign up. I don't need insurance until they need insurance, right? So with that, uh, it it's not working, and we need to get it to work. We need to get to some type of insurance plan that everybody can have access to because it's costing us anyhow. And unfortunately, it's costing the group of us who pay every month at our employer for our insurance. That's who's paying for this. So whether you call it the government, whether you call it Obamacare, whether you call it Bernie Care, I don't know what you want to call it. Okay, but we need to get to some type of universal health care in this country so people have access and the rest of us are not paying for everybody else because that is unfair. Here's on a lighter note. The city of Norwich has adopted a plan to go forward with a disc golf course. For those of you unfamiliar with this sport, it's very interesting. It's, well, it's a Frisbee. Right, They call it disc golf, but I guess because they can't use the word Frisbee, it's probably copyrighted by somebody. But it's very interesting. I've played it several times in Florida, and it's usually in the woods, so there's not some alteration where they're mowing trees down or doing an alteration to the ground. And you have to spin and throw the disc into a basket. And it's actually a great sport because – it doesn't take much in terms of equipment. Frisbees are not that expensive. You don't need special shoes. It doesn't cost a lot of money for the town to build something like that. And what does it do? It gets you outside. It gets you and children outside walking and enjoying nature. So with that, I applaud the city of Norwich for doing something right. They're going to put a disc golf course up in the Mohegan Park uh, which is a beautiful uh, park that they've had for many years, and I, and I think it's a great move to get people out there walking around. Okay, let me give you the phone numbers, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. Next up, we're going to be chatting with my guest, Dr. Matt Imperioli. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Just like the ones I used to know. We're into the Christmas season already, and it's great to have it. Well, my guest today is 
Dr. Matthew Imperioli. Dr. Imperioli is a neurologist. He's a board-certified neurologist and is assistant professor of neurology at the University of Connecticut. He's also director of the Yukon Peripheral Nerve Program. Matt, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me, Dr. Lassie. So let's talk a little bit. Um, first of all, how did you get here? Where'd you go to school? And let's talk a little bit about you. And I want people to understand the credentials of the people who come on this program so they understand you know, that you are truly an expert in this field. Sure. So uh, my training started in college. I went to college at Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Science in Boston. My major was uh, pre-med as well as health psychology. After that, I went to a medical school at St. George's, partly in Grenada and partly in uh, New York City and around uh, New York. And then after that, uh, I did my residency in internal medicine and neurology uh, at UConn uh, before going to University of Michigan for a fellowship, which is additional training uh, in neurology in the specialty of neuromuscular and peripheral nerve disorders. Can we talk a little bit about the fellowship uh, at the University of Michigan? So what kind of things did you study in that year? What So people understand, a lot of people ask me all the time, what is a fellowship? So if you could explain that, that would be great. Yeah, that's a good question. I get that a lot as well. So uh, in the medical community, usually you start your training in a, in a residency. Um, so if you did internal medicine, you would spend three years in, in learning about all the uh, general internal medicine uh, subspecialties and, and the basics. In neurology, we learn about everything in the neurology residency. Uh, but if you have a particular interest in a field, you may want to do additional training to learn more about it. So in a fellowship, you can really focus on a specific field. In neurology, I was really interested in uh, the peripheral um, disorders, the neuromuscular disorders, as it's called. So if you uh, think about neurology, there's the central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord, and then the peripheral nervous system, which are the nerves in the extremities and the trunk. So uh, during the fellowship, um, the uh, year was spent learning about uh, specifically the peripheral uh, nerve and muscles uh, and the disorders that affect that in the body. Um, an important tool in neuromuscular medicine includes uh, electrodiagnostic testing and autonomic testing. So most of the year, too, is spent um, performing and interpreting these tests. Uh, many uh, people may have had this test before. It could be commonly done for something like carpal tunnel syndrome, which is a compressed nerve at the wrist causing some symptoms in the hand. But it can also be used to diagnose other uh, neuromuscular conditions, including peripheral neuropathy, which we'll talk more about, or, or even muscle diseases like muscular dystrophy or myopathies. So uh, the year is an intense focus on, on this um, special area of neurology. You know, Matt, you mentioned an interesting topic, and that's autonomic disorders. And I think even a lot of healthcare professionals don't understand the gamut of autonomic disorders and what could be done to diagnose and treat them. So why don't, let's spend a few minutes on that. Yeah, so the autonomic nervous system is um, important that we need every day, but something that we don't really think about. So the autonomic nervous system is part of our nervous system that's not under our control, like uh, um, being able to move, move control muscles. We have control over those nerves, but we don't have control over the autonomic nerves. So these do important functions like control your digestion, control your sweating and heat regulation, and control urinary bladder functions, things like that. So it may not be something uh, one would think about, uh, in general, but it can uh, cause devastating problems if there's uh, a condition that affects it. And there are some uh, peripheral nerve conditions that can affect the autonomic nervous system. One common one that 
can affect the uh, autonomic nervous systems in diabetes. If uh, diabetes is uncontrolled for a long period of time, it can affect your peripheral nerves and your hands and your feet, causing numbness, tingling, and weakness. But it can also affect the autonomic nerves and cause a lot of uh, very different uh, symptoms and, and uh, conditions. So, Matt, someone who may have an autonomic disorder, and again, as far as I know, you're the only person who sees these people. There aren't a lot of neurologists who do autonomic disorders. Uh, if someone has any symptoms, what do you do to test them and treat them? So, yeah, uh, the neurology community is, has, I think, more recently been interested in, in autonomic testing, and um, and it's something that I specialize in and do at the University of Connecticut. So if uh, a patient or uh, their physician is concerned they may have a disorder of their autonomic system, um, some symptoms may be uh, your blood pressure drops when you stand up so you feel very lightheaded or faint, or you have problems controlling your heat and, and ability to sweat, um, or loss of control of uh, bowel and bladder functions, um, we can perform autonomic testing. So this is non-invasive testing, um, which... Uh, we use different reflexes to measure to kind of assess and gauge how the autonomic nervous system is functioning. So some of these tests may include ability, uh, I mean, a test uh, for one's ability to sweat. Um, we can use a special device to measure very small amounts of sweat to check these nerves. We can measure heart rate and blood pressure uh, fluctuations and variations doing different maneuvers, like breathing in and out very slowly. Or uh, a tilt table test where a patient lays in the bed and they get tilted up slowly and we watch how their blood pressure and heart rate changes over time. So these are non-invasive uh, invasive testing that we do to assess the autonomic system. I always find it interesting in how you approach them in terms of treatment. I mean, in some cases, it's really more practical things like stockings. Mm -hmm. um, what other ways do you go about treating somebody with an autonomic problem? So once uh, the diagnosis is made, uh, there's uh, very different um, treatments that may be available. So there's a, a whole host of uh, conditions that could cause autonomic dysfunction. Um, Parkinson's disease and, and the syndromes like Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease can cause autonomic dysfunction. Um, and some of the treatments include treating the underlying Parkinson's disease. But for low blood pressure or drops in blood pressure, which we call orthostatic hypotension, meaning as you stand up, your blood pressure drops as blood kind of pools down in the legs. There's uh, several different medications that are available in a, in a recently FDA-approved medication a few years ago called Nortera that came out. Um, these medications can help stabilize um, blood pressure and, and improve uh, one's symptoms and, and uh, functionality during the day um, if the conservative measures like drinking more fluid and using compression stockings hasn't helped. With any program, I guess the buzzword is uh, really multidisciplinary. So in, in your program. You also have, uh, what other disciplines do you have um, that help support you? So yeah, at the University of Connecticut, the peripheral nerve program, we decided to take a, a kind of a more unique approach to peripheral nerve disorders with a multidisciplinary clinic. So uh, what that means and, and what we're trying to do is to, um, for our patients to kind of uh, speed up their diagnosis and treatment, we want to have them come and spend a, a more time with us during their first visit where we can do a lot of testing all at once and have them see multiple different specialties and specialists, as you mentioned. So in our multidisciplinary clinic, uh, a, a patient will come uh, for assessment of their peripheral neuropathy. They'll see a, the neurologist who will do their exam and take their history. And the neurologist will also perform uh, electrodiagnostic testing or autonomic testing uh, to diagnose their condition. 
Uh, and outside the neurologist, they'll see a physical therapist and occupational therapist during the same appointment. Um, so they may uh, need bracing to help support their balance or gait, or they may need some exercise or different um, rehab techniques to improve their gait. And um, we also have recently hired a physiatrist that's a specialist in uh, rehab medicine to uh, evaluate the patients for other rehab or bracing needs. That's great. And I think that's so important, really, to get a lot of opinions at one time. So we're going to take a short break. Um, the phone numbers here are 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. Danny's on the line. We're going to hold off and get to Danny's question. Uh, just so you have the information to make an appointment with Dr. Imperioli in the Peripheral Nerve Program, the phone number is 860-679-7505. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, listening to one of the uh, Christmas carols I guess we could still listen to that has not been banned lately. By the... Okay. Um, so as long as it's not been banned by the PC police, we're okay. All right. Um, we're back with my guest, Dr. Matthew Imperioli. We're talking about peripheral nerve disease and autonomic function. And Danny's been patient uh, on the line. Danny, welcome to the show. Hi, doctor. Uh, I have a question about, um, I have sleep apnea, and I've developed, I just had a sleep study back in March, and I got a new machine, an autopap, but I've, I take my blood pressure during the day because I've had uh, trouble regulating it, and um, my machine has been calibrated with my doctor's machine, so I know the numbers are fairly close to, to uh, you know, accurate. And I'll go to bed at night at 11 o'clock, and I'll have a blood pressure of 101 over 52. I'll take my blood pressure meds and, and get up six and a half hours later. And in the morning, my blood pressure, my first pressure will be 169 over 86. And 10 minutes later, it'll be 144 over 76. That's just an example from the other day. And I never used to have pressures that high first thing in the morning especially with only six and a half hours of sleep, taking a lot of my blood pressure medication just before bed. I was wondering, is that the, is that the um, sympathetic nervous system can cause, uh, and my respiration rate's about 18 to 20 a night during the night per, per um, minute. That's a great question, Danny, really, really is. Um, let me ask you a question. How do you feel when you wake up? Do you feel ill? I mean, I don't feel great. I mean, I feel I feel unrested. You feel you, know, ref I've, you I've, feel refreshed? No, no, I haven't felt refreshed in a long time. All right, all right. All right. Matt, what do you think? So, uh, uncontrolled or problems controlling your your blood pressure is a common uh, problem with obstructive sleep apnea, especially if it's if it's not treated fully. Um, the, your blood pressure is maintained by a lot of different systems, including the autonomic system, helps to regulate it. Um, the brainstem regulates it. Your kidneys are working together with the system. So it's a complex interplay between a lot of different uh, systems. But um, if you're up standing, um, walking around, sometimes blood can pool in your leg and maybe your blood pressure isn't as high as if you lay flat and kind of blood is, uh, gravity is kind of taken out of the situation. Some people have higher blood pressures at night um, when they're laying flat. Um, yeah. Maybe it has to do something with the, the settings. If you notice recently, uh, that they adjusted your uh, CPAP and now your blood pressures are higher. 
Um, do you see a, a sleep specialist? Yes, I do. And, and um, you know, I asked him about it, and I, I've i got a, an appointment to go to Yale to the hypertension lab mm-hmm. in January. Great. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Are you taking your blood pressure in the same position in the same arm um, every yeah, time? Yeah, same arm, same position. Okay. I don't move the machine. It stays on the table. You know, every everything's stable all the time. Well, keep us posted. You could shoot me an email over at info at alessimd.com. I'd be interested in what they say down at Yale. Okay. Great chatting, with, great chatting with you, Danny. Um, so, Matt, let's talk a little bit about peripheral neuropathy. Um, what do people need to know about it? So, um, like I mentioned before, peripheral, um, the peripheral nervous system is your peripheral nerves and muscles in your extremities. So peripheral neuropathy is actually a pretty common condition. Um, and the incidence of peripheral neuropathy increases with age. Um, so there's many, many causes of peripheral neuropathy. The most common would be diabetes, especially uncontrolled diabetes over a long period of time. Um, and if you just look at diabetics in general, about 45% of diabetics will eventually develop some degree of peripheral neuropathy. But there's a lot of different causes. Um, another common Unfortunate cause would be uh, if you ever needed chemotherapy or exposed to chemotherapy, that could damage nerves. There's rare causes like where your immune system attacks your nerves and causes a neuropathy. And, and actually, uh, overall, in about 20 to 30 percent of people who have peripheral neuropathy, we can't find an underlying cause despite extensive testing. Um, and we call that an idiopathic neuropathy. And that um, unfortunately remains a large group of uh, patients. Like I mentioned, about 30 percent um, today, we can't find an underlying cause. How does somebody know they have peripheral neuropathy? What makes them think? What are, what are the symptoms they're going to start feeling? Uh, many peripheral neuropathies start as, as what we call a length-dependent process, meaning the longest nerves in the body get affected first. So uh, the longest nerves in the body are the ones that go all the way down to your feet. So actually in the nervous system, there's one uh, nerve that goes from your foot to your um, it's into your spinal cord, and then one, another nerve that goes up from the spinal cord to the brain to do sensation in your feet. So the longest nerves in the body are, are, uh, take a lot more energy um, to maintain themselves, so they're more prone to certain conditions like diabetes that can cause peripheral neuropathy. So uh, many of the earliest symptoms in neuropathy include numbness, tingling, or pain in the feet, um, and this can uh, spread up the legs or later involve the hands. It can also affect the strength, too, so patients may notice difficulty um, with uh, strength standing on their feet um, or, or gripping or moving and manipulating their hands. Um, later in the condition, it can also affect balance where uh, p- patients may feel unstable um, and have difficulty walking. Does age play a factor here when you talk about length dependent? So naturally, as we age, the nervous system isn't spared. So there's a natural aging process where over time, some of uh, your nerves, you, na- you naturally kind of lose a little bit of sensation in your feet. Um, but not, that's not necessarily neuropathy. But yeah, like I mentioned, your uh, the incidence of neuropathy goes up as you age, and maybe it's more exposure over time to different conditions, too. How dangerous is it? So when when you get these signs and symptoms, you start noticing tingling and numbness, or you start to notice that uh, you can't sense temperature as much in your feet, or your feet and hands are always cold, how, how dangerous could that be in terms of just the sensory symptoms we're talking about? So the sensory symptoms are pretty common, and... Uh, um, and some patients, especially in the idiopathic neuropathies, usually the neuropathy just starts as numbness and tingling in the feet and can uh, work its way up the legs a little bit involved the hands, but usually doesn't spread uh, more than that. 
Um, what we start to get worried about is the numbness and tingling progresses very rapidly over days to weeks, um, involving, you know, starting at the feet and moving up the legs, the thighs really quickly, or the hands going up the arms really quickly. So rapid spread um, that's persistent is is really concerning. And especially if it progresses to weakness where very quickly people aren't able to ambulate or stand up from a chair. Um, those are when uh, neuro- the symptoms that neurologists really get concerned about that there may be something more serious going on. Matt, walk us through the program uh, at UConn, the peripheral nerve program. So somebody calls the number, 860-679-7505, and they make an appointment. Walk us through what happens. So, yeah, we'll see our uh, the patients in the peripheral nerve program in our electrodiagnostic lab. Um, that's a, uh, a floor in the hospital which is dedicated just to neuro, uh, neurological testing. So when the patients come into the lab, uh, they'll first see one of us uh, neurologists. So uh, along with myself, there's two other uh, neuromuscular trained uh, neurologists that I'm working with, Dr. Weinstein and Dr. Catherine Alessi, who uh, we're all fellowship trained in peripheral nerve and muscle diseases. So we'll take a history, we'll do a physical exam, and learn about um, the patient. And uh, following that, we'll do electrodiagnostic testing, an EMG. So that test involves, if uh, if people have not had it before, um, putting uh, electrodes, little wires on the skin of the arm and leg, and doing electrical stimulations to check the nerves, because the nerves are actually like biological wires. So if we give it electrical charge, we can see how the nerve's working. And we'll also use... um, sometimes small acupuncture needles to check different muscles. Um, and there's no electrical stimulations or injections through the needles, but we actually we can record how the nerves and muscles are working together. And sounds uh, somewhat intimidating for patients, but usually people tolerate it well. And um, just to learn the procedure, uh, oftentimes doctors will practice on each other so we get a sense of how it feels, so we could be in tune to um, what patients are experiencing and, and lower patients' discomfort. It's a key part of it. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I've had the medical students and residents practice on me several times, so I know what what patients are going through. Um, And after that, um, once we kind of get a handle on uh, their neuropathy and what's going on, we'll have um, the uh, uh, patient see a physical therapist or occupational therapist so they could check their balance, maybe assess to see if they need a brace or something like that to help them walk, and we'll give them a rehab plan. And uh, at times we may have our physical uh, and medicine rehab doctor um, who joined us, Dr. O'Keefe, who will be assessing if patients need more advanced rehab or bracing to um, to help them walk. And and we're really aiming to have this done all in one afternoon over a period of a couple hours so patients don't need to spend several months going from doctor to therapist. We all have it in a kind of one-stop shop. That's great. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Matthew Imperioli. Uh, we're going to talk about the treatment of peripheral neuropathy, what you can do for peripheral nerve symptoms. And also, another common symptom people have is weakness. So let's talk about how that plays into the peripheral nervous system with Dr. Imperioli. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're chatting today with Dr. Matthew Imperioli about peripheral nerve disease. Matt, right before the break, we started talking about peripheral neuropathy, numbness, tingling, pins and needles, um, how you work it up. But what are some of the treatments that that you can give to people who are having these symptoms? 
So treatment off, often depends on, on the underlying cause. So that's first what we try to figure out is what's causing this neuropathy. Once we get a handle on the cause, then we may be able to, to provide treatment that may improve it, or at least we'll try to figure out how to treat the symptoms then. Some uh, causes neuropathy really can't be uh, reversed, but though it could be treated. So our nerves don't have the ability like our skin cells to multiply. So you're born with all your nerves. And over time, if you if they get injured, they have some ability to heal, but not really multiply and kind of regrow exactly like other other tissues. So once we find a cause, some of the treatments could be in terms of the pain. Um, there's a lot of different medications, non-opioid or narcotic medications that are used or designed to treat the nerve pain, which can be stabbing or burning or or pins and needles sensation. In terms of uh, coordination, we may prescribe. Rehab to improve balance, coordination, gait. Um, and there's some uh, uh, causes of peripheral neuropathy that uh, have specific um, treatments, um, particularly if they're autoimmune in nature, where your immune system gets confused or tricked and starts attacking your nerves and damaging them. So treatments uh, for those conditions are different medications to change or suppress or quiet down the immune system so it stops attacking the nerves and, and allows the body to heal and to recover. Um, so it really depends on the underlying cause. How about topical treatments, um, you know, creams and things like that? I hear people trying them all the time. Are they helpful? So for some patients, topicals are helpful. Um, usually when the symptoms are limited to the feet, um, there's numbing medications like a lidocaine cream that can help with the burning or uh, stabbing. And then there's capsaicin. Actually, that's interesting. It's uh, Capsaicin is what makes hot peppers hot. So there's a concentrate of that, which you can rub on the feet. And using it um, with regularity can decrease, actually, over time, the burning. Um, so sometimes those help. If those aren't uh, helpful, then um, usually we'll try different pill medications. I promised our listeners we talk a little bit about weakness. So someone presents to you with weakness. And one of the things we naturally go to in neuromuscular disease is myasthenia gravis. Um, what are some of the signs and symptoms people should think about if that they might have myasthenia gravis? So myasthenia gravis is also an uh, autoimmune condition. So that means the body is attacking uh, part of the nerve muscle connection. Um, and the real key to this condition is that it causes fatigable weakness. So as you use the muscle, it gets weaker. Um, myasthenia commonly affects the eye muscles. That's where it usually uh, starts to um, present itself. Um, so patients may have ptosis, which is a droopiness of the eyelid, um, and that could develop throughout the day, or they may get double vision um, where they'll see two. Um, later, if it, it continues to progress, it can involve uh, the extremities, so they may notice fatigable weakness, such as like it gets harder and harder to walk or get up out of a chair or uh, lift objects to their head, uh, up above their head, things like that. Um, at, at its uh, most severe forms, it can affect uh, chewing or swallowing or even breathing muscles. So when someone has this, what are some of the ideas? So you said already that it's weakness more at the end of the day as opposed to when you first wake up. So waking up feeling pretty refreshed Correct. and then, and then getting weaker. How, how would you treat somebody like that? So uh, there's a lot of different treatments for myasthenia gravis. The initial treatment is the medicine that we, can, uh, we use very uh, often for this called pyrostigmine. Um, the brand name's Mestinon. And it's a pill that increases the levels of the uh, neurotransmitter that the, the condition um, sometimes blocks called acetylcholine. And that could be enough to uh, improve mild myasthenia gravis. Later, there's a, a whole host of different medications that adjust the immune system, so to stop the immune system from attacking the nerves. 
And some of them are older medications like prednisone, which many patients have taken for very different conditions. Um, and there's infusions now, including IVIG, a, um, a, a form of uh, immunoglobulins that the body naturally produces, where they get from blood donors and kind of purify, can control the immune system. And actually, even uh, every year, there's new treatments coming out. Recently, in the past year, there was a new FDA-approved medication called Solaris, or Echolizumab, which is uh, designed um, for myasthenia gravis, and it's uh, very effective in treating particularly severe myasthenia gravis. Patients with, uh, when you mentioned IVIG, and we hear about that term quite a bit, can you explain a little bit? So you said it's the gamma globulins, but how do they work in terms of how do they go in and kind of get rid of the antibodies? So um, the there it's a whole uh, infusion of these antibodies that we get from uh, many, many blood donors, and they're kind of purified and, and um, concentrated. So it's not exactly clear exactly how it adjusts the immune system, but it seems to... to perhaps bind to, to bad or pathological antibodies and take those out of circulation. But this flood of immunoglobulins, which the body naturally produces, um, can, it could, uh, when the body sees this flood of these immunoglobulins, can turn down its own immune system so uh, to stop attacking itself, kind of modulates the immune system. Matt, in the field of neuromuscular disease and peripheral nerve disease, what are some of the things we're going to be hearing about in the future? What are some of the things we're going to be hearing about in the news in terms of treatments um, for these conditions? So uh, one one thing you may be hearing about uh, recently uh, in the news is that there's a, a somewhat rare but devastating type of peripheral neuropathy which uh, called hereditary amyloidosis, um, which just in the past year, not that long ago, um, in October uh, November, they came out with two new FDA-approved medications, which was very exciting in our community because previously there wasn't really great treatments, and some patients, um, the treat only treatment available was uh, liver transplant, which is not very really easy. So um, there's a lot of new therapies coming out for different causes of, of neuropathy. And also, um, in the last few years, we've been um, better at doing genetic testing. So genetic testing has become cheaper and easier and faster to do. So uh, we may be able to find certain markers in the blood um, and certain genes that put predispose patients to neuropathy. So I think that's something that we're excited about and we'll uh, see more of being used in the next few years. Matt, just wanted to take time to thank you. Uh, thanks for all you do for our patients. But uh, more importantly, thanks for setting up this great program at the University of Connecticut. As a reminder, if you suspect that you may have weakness or numbness or peripheral neuropathy, you can get in touch with Dr. Imperioli and the folks at the program at 860-679-7505. Matt, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Dr. Lessie. Next week on Healthy Rounds, we're going to be talking. I'm going to be heading to Haiti. So I will be back, though, before our program. I'll be back next Friday and we will have a program. I'm going to be chatting with our friend, Dr. Rick Frechette, while I'm uh, Father Rick Frechette. So I always get that mixed up because it's father and doctor, um, since he is a physician as well as the founder of the St. Luke. Uh, system, the St. Luke Foundation and St. Luke Hospital. I'm going to be down there setting up an electrodiagnostics lab. So I'm going to interview him. We're also going to be chatting with Dr. Syed Hussein from St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center and Trinity Health about the 61-day challenge. You know, we're getting to the end of that. And they've had 3,000 people sign up, including yours truly. So we're going to talk a little bit about that next week. Many thanks to our studio producer. Mike Oko has been on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len.
Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor by going to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.